0: Number nine, number nine, number nine. I had to drop the Beatles reference. (laughs) This is the Eddie Leeway Podcast Show. Welcome. The ninth episode, consistently driven to give you stimulating content. I'm your host, Eddie Sutton, and my partner and assistant, Christine Samaru, ladies and gentlemen. What's going on, everybody? Today, we've got something very good. I think it's going to be a very eye-opening interview, and it may have to be spread into two episodes. We'll have to see. But I'm going to be speaking to a friend of mine named Scott Ebanks, Banks, who served roughly 25 years in the state of New York for a murder he did not commit. Now, some people may know the ass end to this story and never really heard the story properly. This man at 19 was convicted for second degree murder and sentenced 22 years to life. Can you imagine that? You're not even a mature, full grown man and you're going up to Sing Sing or Attica or even Clinton and the rest of your life just might be behind bars, insane, truly insane and we're going to get into that and we're going to have this discussion come up to you momentarily, Uh, you know I keep asking everybody to help us and support, donate and, and become patrons on Patreon. We finally have a new sponsor with us, which is Saldivar Social. They are the proud sponsor of the Eddie Leeway Podcast. You got to check out some of the sickest jewelry creations in the game. www.saldivarsoc.com I-A-L dot com Now, my man Gabe has created pieces for not just uh, an artist like me, the Kingpin Ring but for Billy Gibbons and ZD Top Las Pina Niño, Yellow Wolf The Moonshine Bandits Big Schmo as well as the boys from New Jersey's own Concrete Dream and for being part of checking them out You can use the code LEEWAY10 to get 10% off all your sterling jewelry. There's gold, too, to check out, but I think that excludes the gold. Um, Gabe Saldivar, www.saldivarsocial.com. Yo, you got to check his shit out, man, because I tell you, it's been a long time since I found the interest of wearing rings. But once Gabe hooked me up, forget about it. That thing is on my hand pretty much every day. And even my beautiful better half, Carol Lee, has one too. So take some time out and check them out. Don't forget, in order to donate to the podcast, it's very simple Eddie Leeway156 at gmail.com for PayPal or go to Patreon, patreon.com. Slash Eddie Sutton. We need your support, folks. Stand by. We'll be back in a minute with Scotty e. Banks. Okay, we're back. And I have on the line Mr. Scott E. Banks. Say hello, sir. Hey, how you doing, Eddie? Oh, I'm very, very honored that you've taken the time out today to do this. Because, you know, as since I've started this podcast it's very important to get these stories out you know this thing of ours which is what i call hardcore is to me a very community based thing you know we were just talking about how sometimes you know things aren't as unified you know how so many bands talk about unity i i think there's more the need of an emf- emphasis on community more so than, than the cliche of unity. And, you know, I want to bring these stories out to my listeners to let them know, you know, how deep our thing runs and, and how this whole music scene was built by misfits and outcasts who were able to grow and evolve into some incredibly wonderful people despite the challenges and hardships that all of us have endured. And today, I want to bring your story to the surface.
1: Well, I'm, I'm here and, uh, and definitely, we definitely touched on all of those things you just mentioned.
0: I think you know, that, as well
1: I, as elaborate on other things. So.
0: Yeah, because you know there's so much to this story as well as this system that so many people get trapped and caught in. And, and the lack of justice to these individual cases and everything else. But I'd like to start off with just you know a little bit of your background of your childhood and how you got involved into the music, because all of that's going to fall into your story.
1: Well, I was born in Brooklyn, New York, June 27, 1970, I'm the son of Winston Ebank. You know, my, my dad, he's a Vietnam veteran. He's also a Jamaican immigrant. He came to America in 1956. He was nine years old. My grandparents came over from Jamaica, uh, St. Elizabeth and St. Andrew, Jamaica, where my grandma and my dad were born. My, my Uncle Norman, my Jasmine, all of them came over as immigrants. And they're really a success story. I mean, the American, the so-called American dream, they're the American success. They came over here, worked hard, you know, everybody's homeowners, you know. I'm the product of my dad and my mom, uh, Catherine Montgomery. And, you know, she, uh, their family, my mom's side of family migrated from Georgia when she was a baby, you know, they left the South in 1946 came up to New York and my mom my mom's a New Yorker I mean she came here as an infant yeah uh, came up to New York and uh the funny thing was when they were teenagers my dad would always try to rap to my mom and you know my mom you know at the time you to stick the scene you know my father's
0: an immigrant and my mother would make fun of him Ah. you know like oh you know don't try to
1: talk to me you damn West Indian you you know, you're Jamaican, you're talking funny and all kind of things. So, you know, I, he went to the service, went to the Army 1966, served during the Tet Offensive in 1968 in Vietnam. And my, from my mother's own mouth, this is what she said. She said, when he went to the Army, he was a boy. And when he came home, he was a oh, man. He was gorgeous. And, and, and so now my father, who had always you know, wanted to be with my mom, was always rejected. You know, he, he didn't really put himself out there too much when he came home. He was still recovering from being in a
0: war. I can only imagine, because during yeah, that he, whole... He, he would, I'm sorry, during those whole 60s, that's when it was truly the shit in Vietnam. So I can only imagine what he experienced.
1: <laughs> well, for a black man that was a serviceman... It was like a, it was like a triple whammy because the first part was you went and served in the army and you went to Vietnam. Then you come home and you're in a military base. You did basic training in a military base and your advanced training in a military base in the South. If you know, in the South in 1966, we were right in the middle of the civil rights movement. Exactly. Was, we were just trying to get equality. So. Here, here's one before and after. Uh, before my father deployed, and when he came home, two times he was in a situation where they said uh, uh, niggers eat in the back, like You, you don't eat in the front. Niggers eat in the back. Mind you, he's a soldier. He's in the United States Army. He's a specialist, fourth class, and a helicopter mechanic out
0: of Fort Campbell. Yeah, I okay? don't, I don't know when it started, but a lot of the black men that served in World War II were still. Uh, segregated from the rest of the yes. force. But now, here he is, he's he's an immigrant, and he's a black man. So there is the double whammy right there with the racial issues that were going on.
1: Oh, um, the double whammy, well, I say triple whammy because, all right, here, by that time, the military wasn't segregated anymore. However, if you left the base with your other fellow soldiers, and you went into town... To get a drink, Me, mind you, he was in Fort Campbell, Kentucky. Yeah. He was in a military base by Hampton, Virginia. Was a Hampton, Virginia? He was in a, military, uh, in a military base down there. He was in places that were oppressive to black people at the time. No question. So he went to one place, and they wanted you know, all the soldiers around him because they were all mixed, black, white. You know, We were all army great. And the guys say, "Yeah, you know, white guys can drink here, but the black guys can't." Goes to Vietnam, serves the country, comes back. They're happy to be home. Goes to have a drink. They say, "We we don't serve your kind here." Right. So then, on top of it, he comes back to he's Come back to America, and the people protesting the war are calling the soldiers baby killer.
0: Yep. Yep. You
1: baby killer. You just so boom. You. You serve your country, you're not loved by some of the civilian populace, you're not being respected like, you know, they do today, uh, and you're black, and you're being disrespectful for that, too! <laughs> and, and, on top of it, you're, you're, uh, you're suffering from PTSD from being in the war. So it, it, it was, oh man, can you imagine the type of fortitude a person would have to have to endure
0: that? Oh, to rise above all that. It is it definitely is.
1: So I'm I'm the product of of that man and my mom, who uh, you know they were a Southern Baptist family that came up to New York and you know that had decent jobs and things you know to and afford my mom good opportunities and her time she grew up and uh you know they they got together and had me.
0: And like you oh, said, June how, 1970.
1: Even, that was 1970, even seven zero, you know. Yep. Yep. And uh, wow, you know what an interesting time. Sometimes I look back at the time period. This was two years after Dr. Martin Luther King was assassinated. Yeah. You know, uh, the whole decade prior was a bunch of assassinations. Malcolm X, Kennedy. Uh, Medgar Evers. It was a whole bunch
0: of people that got got killed. No, and and, that and that's why a lot of the Southern blacks started migrating north. Was a lot due to the discrimination, the segregation, and the abuse that they were suffering from. Say just the, the white communities, let alone the KKK and the other challenges that any man was going through at that time you know
1: well you if you really really paint a picture for you there's a book called 100 years of lynching if anybody you know here you know anybody that hears this podcast i want you to go and you know google that or go look 100 years of lynching and just to just to paint a picture for people when you look at some of these pictures they would lynch a black man in the town, and you'd see all of these smiling white faces under this guy hanging from a tree. Yeah, Like, it was a town event. Like, we, yo, we got a nigger, we're going to hang him. And and people celebrated the murdering of a person. Now, in, in today's time, you know, if you mention any of these things, you say any of these things, they go, oh, that was in the past. No, no, really, I'm going to be 50 years old, June 27. This is 2020 now. I'm gonna be 50. Yeah. If you go back, that wasn't a long time ago. I'm just 50.
0: They were lynching people in the 60s too, buddy. Yeah. It it was more down low, but definitely like before World War II. It was almost like that. Town get together like you said. Oh, we're gonna lynch somebody, and everybody would go to town and they would literally watch this happen. And most of the time, the lynchings weren't enough. They they would set a fire the person afterwards, oh, and it, oh, was, it was barbaric. Yeah, and, and it was. Just, go
1: ahead. Uh, not to cut you off, but one of the biggest hypocrisies is we went into the theater of war, World War Two, to stop. You know the, the Nazi regime from moving forward and you know gaining power over Europe and spreading out around the globe. Yeah, the, the, you know that was the intention to get with the other allies and to stop this and to stop the threat in the Pacific because uh, the Japanese were attempting to do the same thing on that side of the world. Well, you you fight a great cause. You you participate in this war and subsequently end up saving the Jewish people that were in concentration camps, other people that were in concentration camps. Already by that time, millions of Jewish people were already killed and gassed and burned and shot to death. But you go over there to save people. But on the home front back in America, people are lining up in the town square to hang somebody from a tree. Exactly.
0: A A hypocritical mindset.
1: Your your behavior is no different than the Hitler Youth in Crystal Notch, than the night of broken glass when you were killing the uh, Jewish people in Germany.
0: Yeah, and it was your, your behavior was
1: exactly identical to what the Nazis did to to Jews in Germany. The same shit was happening to black people, only on a On a way smaller and systematic level, because you you would lynch, but keep in mind, the people that we're talking about here were also brought as slaves hundreds of years prior to that point in American history, and they were systematically oppressed, beaten, raped, sold, uh, uh, cash-traded, maimed, so on, on one way, it was a genocide, a horrific thing for a course of four years, you know the Holocaust. Yeah, but it was a systematic Holocaust was was being conducted in our country.
0: True, I know. I know from my own knowledge of lynchings since the the dawn of the twentieth century. Even though we're in the twenty first century, if you go back a hundred and twenty years, there may be several white men. And one Jewish man who was lynched in Georgia for being accused of a rape and murder of a young woman. But other than that, the whole majority of lynchings were the black men. And, and uh, you know, a lot of people don't realize Billie Holiday's song, Strange Fruit, is right. a tongue-in-cheek reference to such an atrocity that was going on. Absolutely,
1: and I love Billie Holiday. Way,
0: but, um, well, I consider when yeah. I when I try to tell people what hardcore is, I try to explain the passion and heart that we have for this thing. It's not so much a sound or style; it's the passion. And to me, Billie Holiday was hardcore. You get my feel? You,
1: you no, know, I, I understand yeah, uh, and she was an innovator. Uh, you know, her time of the music and the sound, but. If you think of it that way. Well, hell, yeah, hardcore. You would say uh,
0: you would say Chuck Berry was hardcore, a little Richard, you know. Yeah, and <laughs> You're and, the and foundation of rock and roll, you know. Despite You're their despite their peccadillos uh-huh. or their demons, they lived pretty raw lives, you know. Outside of the entertainment that they provided for us and the music they've been able to give us in perpetuity, you know.
1: Yeah, you know, uh, uh, you know a lot of a lot of the foundation people in you know American American music and subculture. I, I guess you, you use that format to say hardcore. Man, we probably yeah, had we had quite a few hardcore. Like uh, you, you probably would say the same thing about uh, Johnny Cash. You yeah, know, Johnny Cash was pretty hardcore, you know. <laughs> you
0: Even know, though man, like was he was just hardcore, a very you know you probably think he hardcore too. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, country isn't my thing, but, you know, a lot of his music does stand out and cross over to many other people because they can just feel and hear the truth. Do you know what I'm saying?
1: Yeah, I I, I get get what you're saying. You know, to be an innovator, to, you know, express yourself in a particular way and to share that with the world. You know, that's it that's what's more hardcore than that that's yeah. pretty much hardcore
0: and, and you know all these people we're talking about like I said either they had you know demons or sexual pe- peccadillo's that are a bit out there but you know th- they endured hardship in life too in their own ways and I guess like you know hardcore for me is an expression instead of calling it the blues having the blues and knowing the blues do you understand what I mean? You know, like it's yeah. just it's just you know these people just were able to really emote their feelings and and capture people, whether they enjoyed their music or not, you know what I mean, or enjoyed that style, just something you know was able to cross over and you got it, you know, and it touched a lot of people. So I, yeah. what I want to do now is, all right, we we get an understanding of your, your parental background and stuff. Let's talk about your education and the the changes in life into your young adulthood, if you could, please. Well, as academically,
1: I, I was a gifted child, I and mean, I, I was what they called back in those days for, you know, the elementary school level, they called us IGC students, which the acronym stood for Intelligent Gifts to Children, and... Uh, I always remember this, well, I pretty much remember, (laughs) I remember like everything, damn it. I remember in second grade, my reading level was in a college level, it it surpassed the 12 point whatever level, but uh, my math scores were like 11.5, and my reading comprehension was in a college level,
0: and I was in the second grade. Yeah, but for me, it was uh, third grade, but I always found you to be an articulate guy. You always had an outstanding vocabulary, you know? Oh, uh, well,
1: thank you. I, I, I grew up listening to Leeway. Maybe that, that helps. He's like, snitches.
0: Uh, snitches. <laughs> you had to throw that in there, huh? Absolutely.
1: Ah. You know, absolutely. You know, uh, but, you know... Uh, I mean, you you influenced me too as a kid, so I mean that, that that's that's a very important thing. I mean, we, we, we I, I'd be remiss not to say that. I mean, one of my favorite shows of all time was Twenty Four Seven Spies, Leeway, and the Bad Brains
0: of the in nineteen eighty nine. Yeah. And wow. I, I don't I I didn't get out of the pit.
1: I, like, I was moshed for 24-7 Spies. My girlfriend was on the side holding my flight jacket, holding the, holding the water and the beer. And come take a sit, get back in the mosh pit. And you ran out on the stage and you was fucking, it was electric. Then HR came out there and they said, with, with no shoes on and a Bible in his hand. And they did the intro and it just went crazy. You know, and, uh, oh yeah, absolutely. You know, you, you made your influence, you know.
0: To, Nobody to needed Tybo. Nobody needed Tybo or aerobics in the 80s because you had hardcore to keep us in good shape oh my and fit. Goodness, we were all fit in. It wasn't just so much that we
1: were young. Yeah, I mean, we, we we were young and tough and nuts. We were doing backflips off the stage, and we are picking up change. And at least back then, when you stage dive, everybody caught you. Nowadays, man, kids stage, I watch these kids just hit the ground. Yeah. I'm like, you know, you guys don't have any sense to... Put down your phone and
0: put your arms, your hands up. I'd the people. I'd say it was a better percentage. But, you know, there were those few at every show. Like, if you remember the Rich shows and you're upstairs looking down Webster Hall, you'd see a couple of people do a, a, a big dive or came off the stage a little wrong and everybody moved out of the way and they landed pretty hard. I always got a kick out uh, seeing the expression on their faces after they got up because you knew it hurt. You knew it must have hurt the living daylights out of them. But everybody gets up and tries to act like, oh, it's okay, I'm fine, I'm fine. They don't really feel it until the next day. I, I think
1: it was slayer and overkill at memoirs so like during the Hell of I missed a little bit like, half my body got caught, but the other part of my body just ate shit,
0: and I hit the floor. Man, I, I was limping
1: like a motherfucker. And like, my hip and my leg hit you know, Like, butt.
0: boom, man. Yes. The only... You know, but, uh, I learned but, I learned to stop dancing very early after having, like, a hairline fracture in my ankle, and this was when Rock Hotel was still on Jane Street. I went to see the Meat Men, and I'm hanging out with Jimmy Murphy's Law... Russell from Underdog, and this Asian cat who used to do graffiti called Wampum. Ironically, okay. his, his sister was a very famous model at the time, and I wound up dating her for a year after that, but that's another story. But, you know, here I am on that dance floor and I totally destroyed my ankle. I was just like, oh, I can't do this shit anymore. I'm too small for this. <laughs> I bet I better, I better I mean, get in a band And and just stage dive And dance for my own show It's safer than this You know
1: Yeah, no, I, I understand But that was, you know That was the way the scene was That was the way our lives were back then And we were just having
0: fun now, now, back to your boyhood You know, here you are You're a gifted kid You're in school You're pretty much light years ahead Of a lot of the kids in your class Um were you really focused in the curriculum? Like did you did you have like things that were straying your mind away? You know, I know by the time I hit the third grade, my family structure fell apart. My parents split up. You know what I mean? I, I think I think that that was that was always a crux for me, was my family setting. Yeah, it's, a, it's an it's
1: emotional change. Well, my parents were never married, and, uh, you know, I know my dad, I, you know, obviously I, I you know, I, loved, I grew up with him, I grew up with, you know, knowing both my parents and them being part of my, being in my life.
0: Well, that's good. But
1: uh, in both sets of my grandparents and everything like that, but my father, being a young guy that just came home from a war, and you know, and I understand now as a man, myself as an adult, that, you know, he didn't... He didn't want to be in a relationship like that. He wanted to mess with all a bunch of different women. He was just happy to be alive. I mean but a major part of a major part of our you know our subsequent bond isn't uh, that. heavily connected to my grandparents, my grandparents, Wanted me in their life because I'm the firstborn grandchild. I'm the firstborn here in America. Of you know, I'm the first grandchild, and I'm their son's kid. So they made an effort to. Oh no, he's our baby. That's our grandkid. You know, my my mother's mother was the same way. You know, so you had grandparents and aunts and uncles and people involved, but their own. Relationship that was make-up, one, you know, break-up one minute, make-up the next. Neither one of them should have been in any type of relationship. And, you know, my father is the ladies, man. You know, he's with the ladies. And my mom, she has her own issues.
0: Uh-huh. And, you know, she, but she wanted him to be in the, her, her life. And he's going around, he's messing with other women. So, if my, but my
1: mother had, issues and was abusive to me, and most of that is stemming from her having been abused herself as a
0: kid. Do you, do, so, yeah, I you know, um, yeah. I see the same thing in my family, and like, you know, my dad was a bit of a ladies man. My dad was considered a cowboy around 1970 and the early 70s. I've not really discussed him only till recently, but he was in the life beat. You know what I mean? He grew up in Greenpoint, Brooklyn. He had a legit day job with uh, WOR TV as a film editor. But at night, he's running an auto collision and is establishing the blueprints to what is known as the modern day chop shop. You know what I mean? So, And, and my dad did wilder shit. You know, he was out there robbing drug dealers and, and doing a lot of crazy stuff. And yeah. You know, his mind fell off and got lost, and my mom was very embittered at the change and that betrayal, and I think women that are in the challenge of raising babies, especially during the 70s, they let their emotions beat them, and they would get so upset with their kids, they would lose control, discipline, you know what I mean? And yes, it is considered today, whether it's verbal abuse or physical abuse, it was what it was, but that's how people raised their kids back then.
1: You know, it, the family structure, right, especially for poor people or people from socioeconomically impoverished environments, it was, it was really rough because, you know, you had the government offering welfare to mothers, but the stipulations of the welfare was... You couldn't have an able bodied man in the house. Exactly. You you weren't allowed to have a man in the house and you could get this government assistance, you can get this house in the project, you know, this apartment in the project. You know, you can get section eight or whatever, but so that kinda of helped destroy the family value structure.
0: I I agree you with that. You know what I mean? And you know, my, my father's side of family is Jamaican, so
1: they have old world values. No, you take care of your kids. No, you work hard for yours. You don't ask the government for anything. You know, so they, they on you know, one side, it was like that. My mom's family at that time were financially stable, and my mom always kept her job. She worked for the telephone company for many years, but my, that side of my family started falling off bad because of alcoholism and drugs. Yeah, same thing. You know, we, we had a lot of people with problems where it, father side of family it was more like straight laced, working class, Jamaican people, you know? Yeah. So uh yeah, there was a whole bunch of things at play in my young out of my young childhood. I wasn't even an adolescent yet, I was still a kid. Uh that that shaped me into the teenager that would end up on the Lower East side and into the scene. Now know?
0: Go ahead, I'm
1: sorry. No, I, well, I'm, I'm trying to tie it in. Like The years between my birth, I'll say from my birth to, to 11 years old, uh, it was. From, I was from one parent to the other parent, one parent to the other parent, one set of grandparents to the other set of grandparents. So while I had the love and those memories from then, you know the Christmases, the Thanksgivings, the hugs and kisses from both of my grandmothers and my grandfathers. You know, and my aunts and uncles, and you know, in the love of my parents, there, there was always some matter of contention between my parents. You know,
0: and you would shuttle oh, back and, and forth,
1: long back and forth, back and forth. And while I'm a great student at the time, you know. Uh, I got some issues at home, at times, you
0: know? Yeah. Depending on where I live. Yeah, the key key years that my family was developing after the breakup of my parents, we were on the island from like 73 until the night John Lennon was shot and killed. That's when I moved back to Astoria. So that's December, 1980. And we were the only family on the block that was divorced. Uh, We were the only family on the block that was paying rent for our home. And we were the only family on the block that was on and off welfare because my mom's trying to hold it down herself, you know? So, you know, these socioeconomic issues that were going on at the time, as well as the change in the family dynamics because divorce really started climbing at these times even though your parents weren't married, you still had the love from both sides, but that feeling of being shuttled back and forth, and I guess a, a an in, inner feeling that you, you're not grounded was was a challenge for you very much like it was for me, you know? Oh, it, it, it growing up, man,
1: being in that situation, you know, you, you, you don't realize it, you can't articulate it then at that time, but You just wanted some normality, you know? Yeah. I I, I wanted my parents to be together. I didn't know why they were always fighting. None of this, you know, none of this shit makes sense to me, you know? But uh, as I got older and seen more of the world and, you know, started studying certain things, I, I understood why and started learning more about my dad and his experiences in Vietnam. And things that happened to my mom, you know, when she was young, and it painted a you know better picture for me. Sure. you know, that, you know to to this point where I understand, you know, but when you're like nine years old, you're not getting none of this. You don't understand why.
0: Took me 30 years to try to figure it happened. out. You know, it took me 30 hey, years.
1: Oh yeah. It's- yeah, in a lot of ways, we're still trying to figure it out I mean, it, 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 at the age we are. Yeah. You know, none, none, life doesn't come with a rule book, that's for
0: damn sure. Not at and all. I wish. We, 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 like to, we like
1: to assume it
0: does, but it doesn't. Now, you're, all yeah. right, we're, we're getting into your teenage years now. You know, how were you turned on to rock and roll instead of, like, just going with the norm oh, yeah. from your, your community, if you will? Well,
1: well, the norm of my community. Think about, think about what what's said there. My mom and I moved to a section of Brooklyn at the time that was all white. We were, the, as a matter of fact, at that time, 1978, we were the only black family in that building. Okay. This was. Uh, Flatbush area of Brooklyn, but going more towards, going more towards King's Plaza, or about Brooklyn College. I lived like five blocks, five long blocks from Brooklyn College area, the Junction. Gotcha. And back then, that whole area was Italian, Irish, and Jewish. Okay, and so the kids that I played with and played softball with, played touch football with, you know, I'm eight, nine years old. You know, in that, in that neighborhood, a lot of them were white. Then other families started coming, and there were other kids that were black, and we all would play together. You know, my my buddy, my buddy uh, Robert, and uh, you know uh, Craig, and you know my, my boy Kelly, who was Irish. You know, yeah, we we would hang out, and uh, Kenny, yeah, he was a Kenny was Italian, and we had this little, we had a little, a little playmates, you know, Yeah. we were all you know, white black, my boy Oscar was Puerto Rican, you know and we played softball together and you know, we play, we play basketball you know, across the street from my house and uh I, my mom used to play like soft rock in the morning, like they had a radio station, I can't even remember what the number for the dial was but it was, it was like a lot of Beatles, James Taylor, you know,
0: maybe later in the day you might have heard of Zeph song, a lot of Rolling Stones. Like PLJ. Know, Sounds like wow. WPLJ.
1: So yeah, something like that, PLJ. Wow, that was nice, bro. But like, you... you know, back then, and we, I, that's what I would hear in the morning, getting ready for school. But my mom, you know, obviously heavy into the Motown sound, you know, for our generation. But she was also into fusion jazz. Got it. So she introduced me to groups like Weather Report and Spyro Gyra. And, and, you know, I I fell in love with uh, the Yellow Jackets and Return of Forever and all these phenomenal musicians. And my mom would, she introduced me to jazz, man. Like, and to this day, I I love jazz. You know, like, I love Stanley Clark. You know, I love Al Daniola, you know, I, I I love all of that. Jaco Pastorius, uh, God bless him, you know. Yeah. I, I knew him from from New York City before he got murdered, before he got killed. Jaco's, you know, and everybody knew Jaco. He's was always drunk in the neighborhood. But this was one of the greatest this act has to be I don't I mean, think not even really much of an argument. He's probably the greatest musician that I personally
0: have met. He, yeah, he was yeah, a genius. I
1: mean, just a a from Weather Report, you yeah, know?
0: but he, you would um, see him, you would think he's just like a typical, you know, uh, Latin guy from the yeah. neighborhood who's just straight up borracho. You know what I mean? Like, but he. When we were kids,
1: when we were kids, we used to be in Washington Square Park, drunk and fucked up.
0: Yeah, but he would pick and up beautiful that.
1: beautiful apartment over there, on fucking 14th Street, Ninth Avenue. Now, I remember in his apartment, he had a leather love seat, and he had mad fucking musical equipment, amp amps. He had two basses. This is the first time i ever seen a fretless electric bass. He had an $8,000 fretless bass that was like this mahogany wood, fucking, this thing was gorgeous.
0: It's probably and worth more than a Mercedes-Benz today if, if somebody owns it. Yeah,
1: that that particular face, somebody had it is a Mercedes that he had a fender jazz face that was like like Robin Robin Egg blue with the pick guard on it. That one I remember him telling me that was twenty three hundred dollars. That was back in nineteen eighty six. He had another one, he had that, the one the brown one, the Mahogany one was eight thousand dollars. And he would buy all of us kids beer. You know I mean? That's straight, like, because he, he was drunk, too. Yeah. And we were all punk rock freaks. And I remember my brother, Bundy, we were sitting on the park bench, and, you know, yeah, we had girls with us, bench, and we, we stayed up all night tripping. You know, we were out for a while out We're sitting there, and this guy comes up to us, and he's like, oh, what what you kids know about music? You guys are punk rock
2: <laughs> and we like
1: get out of here old man you know he, he said, I'm the greatest musician in the world so you know Bundy's ready to run him away like yo dude get up
0: out of here you he, know he trying to talk to you but really he so is said, no we, we don't know this yet I know and I he know says, he goes have you ever heard weather report
1: once he said that my ears just perked up you know like yeah I'm like what I said what you know about weather report yeah. <laughs> what you know about <laughs> weather report I said, man, I, I got here the vinyl, the vinyl at my mother's house. It's heavy weather, man, Birdland. So I tell him, boom, 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 doom. And he just kind of sobered up a little, and he looked at me, and he tapped me in the chest. He said, well, you know something then, huh? You know something about the music. And he puts his gym bag down. Now, mind you, this guy is drunk with a brand-new champion sweatsuit on, Nikes on, brand-new Nikes on his feet. His hair looks greasy and scraggly, but all his clothes are new.
0: Yeah, and he's, he's all he sharp and bag, fresh.
1: Right, he looks fresh, but he's drunk. He puts the bag down, he's rifling through the bag, he pulls out a, ca- uh, a calendar. He says, Musicians of the Year, in this like neon paint, with a like a space background. And he's <laughs> flipping it over and he's looking at us like we in with contempt. Like some fucking kids don't know. And he flips it over to the month of May. Oh, mind you, before that, he pulls out his wallet and his passport and hands it to my girlfriend at the time. He's like...
0: This is my so name. he's
1: like, what the fuck? Like, who is it? And then he flips the fucking calendar over right on the month of May with that same $8,000 base.
0: Understand. And, and,
1: I, and I hugged him, and ever since then, we were friends until he got killed outside of that nightclub, you know. Yeah. Which, uh, you know, it's fucking crazy,
0: man. It, it was a shame that those bouncers didn't know who he was, but, you know, like, back then, bouncers just treated people like shit. I was going to ask you, like, here you are at these Lamore shows, bugging out and having a great time. Were you ever subjected to any of the shit that the Lemours bouncers used to do? Because they had an every night they were literally throwing kids out the back door on their heads, and that's why a, you know, a kid eventually died at a show at Lemours because of the way they treated them. I, I think I think I had you know a proverbial angel on my shoulder
1: because I. I was I would go to Lamore so much that you know the bouncers would see me and then the, you know they had a big big guy there with a big long beard you know a big monster and, and he would say you gonna stay out of trouble and I'm like yeah man how am I gonna get in trouble but I was such a regular there that they were nice to me I did get drunk during ex it was Exodus it was mental abuse mental abuse agnostic front Exodus. And I got so drunk that I ended up in Coney Island Hospital. Ah. But uh, aside from that, no, I've gotten kicked out from where usually perhaps a fight in there, and they weren't rough with me. They just kind of ushered me to the door. Then it got to the point where I would show up, and so many of my friends were there, that we might have been in a situation where it was a standoff. Because now you got to look, we outnumber the bouncers. Yeah. And and we're we're violent, too. They're like, all right, guys, chill out. Chill the fuck out. Like, yeah, we ain't gonna turn over the
0: Sometimes in Manhattan, you know, things would pop off. I remember when we turned on the Hells Angels bouncers at Irving Plaza for a new music seminar show because they didn't understand the kids dancing and they started abusing some of them who were trying to get on stage to stage dive. But then a lot of kids, a lot of us turned, like Russell, Little Chris... And a bunch of the guys that you don't see anymore All turned on the Hells Angels bouncers And they got all slapped up Now, that doesn't happen in the real world You know what I mean? Like, you don't mess with Hells Angels But they were pushing it to such a level that night That we turned on them and showed them You know, that might is right You know, the strength in numbers is, is what this was about and and that's why we had you know to deal with a lot of situations where we had to protect ourselves in the community because to be a part of punk rock and hardcore at that time you were a freak you were a misfit and outcast, you were little, literally abused because you listened to this type of music
1: oh man it, it was like that and you're a city kid on top of it i mean we, you know, for like somebody who's black, or, you know, uh, you know, like a Latin American or Latino, it, it would be like uh, we we were ostracized in our own community, like back in the hood. Yep. Yeah. Because here it is, you know, you're you're you of the same people, but you want to listen to punk rock, you know, uh, you're wearing these big black or red boots. Is wearing a leopard print skirt or like a bondage 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 pants that were like uh, you know plaid and shit and zippers looking, uh, bondage choker collar with a ring in her
0: nose. We 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 weren't socially acceptable by anybody. No, and and there's millions of kids that dress that way today, and it's no big deal. Right. But back then, because you weren't part of your social norm. It scared the other kids, I think, and that's why they wanted to abuse us because they they were kind of shocked or even afraid that we were individual thinkers and we were willing to be who we wanted to be and not give a fuck about what is the norm in our community or neighborhoods. Do you know what I'm saying? Nine, nine times
1: out of ten, the hardcore kid or the punk rock kid on average, we were smarter than the people of equal age that weren't in our scene. Like, we had more of a, a, a worldview, a political view.
2: We were doing, we were going to protests where other kids at that time were just trying to get fashionable. And they were trying to wear the new gear that was out at the time. Trying, you know, all of us trying to oppress our girlfriends no matter where we were. Yeah. But, Punk rock kids always had, you know, we, we, we
1: have these, like, insight and foresight, you know, in, in, into life and existence in the world. You know, you, you, we had friends like, you know, John Joseph, and, you know, it was uh, a Hare Krishna started learning the Vedas. People started getting into Buddhism, you know, and, and trying to learn different things. They wanted to think outside of the box, and they wanted to experience it.
0: People are vegetarian veganism wasn't big yet, but they, you know, even tattoos weren't big yet. They Um, weren't, tattoos weren't even big yet. I mean, technically, it was, in fact, tattoos, this
1: was a funny thing, the only people that had tattoos were either military,
0: because it was illegal it was illegal in the five boroughs until about 9192 my dad looked like a biker on the street he was known as Eddie the Beard and had long hair and a beard and he was fully sleeved by 1973 it was unheard of and and so here we are talking about 86 87 and still we're five years away from tattooing being legalized in the five boroughs in New York. You know, so, yeah. it, you know, these things were, were pretty shocking to, to the average norm. And like, I, like you said, we were free thinkers. We were striving to be individuals. In many ways, you know, the social norms of all these communities made us feel like freaks and outcasts. So we went and searched for our own world and found it, you know, by grace. Yeah, we, we
1: we created
0: it. Yeah.
1: Yeah, we we definitely created it on the fly, you
0: know. Now, now I do want and to get in on this, on on what happened to you in 89 and, and having to go through your case and trial into 1990. Do you think you were an angry man or do you think you were like an angry kid? just growing up the way most oh, kids man. are growing up, or... I, I wasn't initially angry. Not initially, I was a sweet kid.
1: I was actually a nerdy, nerdy, skinny kid, you know? Yeah. And I went through my little grown spurt at 12, and got, you know, got a little big. I went away to summer camp. I went away to summer camp. This was 1980. I was 10. And I came back home, like, a little bigger than next year. I did it again. And uh, 1982, April of '82, Dad got custody of me. Uh uh-huh. So you know, summer camp was done, but I was going through my little growth spurts. You know, like I went from being clumsy and unathletic to like catching every ball, running people over with the football. You know, yeah, it's just be those changes. And at that time, I just wanted to, I wanted to please my parents. You know, I, you know, I didn't, I didn't want to no be, you know. Um, I'm getting beat up by my mom on a regular basis, which wasn't cool, you know, but uh, I I was a good kid. On the Lower East Side, living in a squat, you 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 had to have somewhat of an edge to you.
0: Oh, survival skills.
1: Yeah, man, because uh, people, are, people are predatory. And people are predatory, and they'll take what little you got.
0: And especially and you, down you, you there. Yeah, hold it down, You can't fight. You're, you're fucked. You know, so I, I,
1: I, and I was taught by older skins, older skinheads, man. That hey, man, you gotta be preemptive with this thing.
0: If if you think somebody's gonna fuck you up, fuck them up first. Yeah, you gotta be quick. (laughs) I was taught. I was always the little guy, and most of the time, if I didn't, if I didn't make the first move and hit somebody with something, I was gonna get my ass kicked. So that that was my reaction. A a lot of other guys were bigger than me. So, you know, they could have handled themselves a different way. But that was my MO, you know, to try to stay out of trouble. But if shit was going to drop, you know, I I would just grab what I could and use it to get out of the situation and put an end to it, you know. But uh, here you are, you know, 1989. You know, I'm five years older than you. So between 80 and 90, I was going through my own transition and got caught up with drugs. So I started falling out of, like, the everyday lifestyle of our scene. And my criminal life, you know, to survive doing what I was doing, I tried to separate from the music. I didn't want people to know I was doing whatever I was doing to make money or survive. You know, you on the other hand, you're living down there, you're there every night, you know, you, you're you becoming part of that scene community with all the others that are living down there. And, and you know, uh, you remember how Tompkins Square Park was at that time, it was before the riots, yeah, I mean, you color that for everyone, because this is before the riots, this is before they cleared all the, the the people who were living in the park in tents and shanties, you know, give people an idea of what we were witnessing at I, that time.
1: You know something, I, I explained this to somebody one time, you know, some young guy, and they were pretty, well they were like, wow, and we were in the park. This was recently, maybe about a year ago, and I said, right over here, where the mouth of the park is, a goes right in the St. Marks, like a base in St. Marks.
0: Yeah, big open, welcoming entrance.
1: Right. I remember times there would be like five, six dreads playing keep up with the soccer ball. uh uh-huh. There'd be like three skins, four pumps sitting on the bench. And we would all smoke weed together. Like the rosters had the weed. And here, it, it, the link between them and the punks a lot of time were me because i'm jamaican true so I, w- I would speak broken english to them you know and they'd with the rasta would the oh star what i do with the blood clad with the blood clad punk rock people man with the white people man who know for come out of that and i said no man i'm a brethren man you know my am family and they said no star we your family you know I and mean? they would <laughs> you know the you know dread, you know mess with me but it would end in like, it'd be a uh, a dread, a dread, a skin, a punk, another, and we passed in the blunt. And one of my other friends, you know, two of my other friends, straight edge, so they're not smoking shit. And they are standing there, next you know, you got a couple of them playing keep up with the dread. So it was, it was, it was a unique thing like you have. And you got, you know, the large uh, Puerto Rican community there at the time. So you had neighborhood kids that were Puerto Rican, B-boy style, you know. And some of the homies would come through. And they, they, they
0: listened to hip-hop. But this is, this is rap back then. You yeah. know, like, I only you know, listened on to rap listening. when it turned into hip-hop. You know, I, I I I kind of fell out of the interest in it because it just seemed like... They wanted to glorify uh, crime and and getting money and, and all of that stuff and the materialistic things of it wasn't really, uh, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? It wasn't really drawing my interest the way rap did up until about eighty nine ninety. You know? You know, uh,
1: that around that time, we talked 86, 87... You know, the, the hottest thing in rap, you know, the hottest, you had Eric B and Rakim, you had KRS-One, you know, you, you, you had EPMD come, just come out, um, and, then, you know, of course, you had the big, big people like, you know, Run DMC, LL Cool J was just, you know, he was taking a flight now, and... You know, then we started hearing the sound from the West Coast. By the time 88 came around, you know, UWA uh, had taken off, and you know, this was pretty much music for whatever hook you came from, with, you know, for all of us. Yes. You know, and um, that was the sound of the street, and we would have hip-hop music going on, then we started hearing, you know, the lesser-known, you know, the people that aren't up on rap. Like, you, you know, you had uh, Big Daddy Kane, and and Kwame, and you know these different different types of things coming out every other month.
0: Yeah, uh, Kid
1: and Play and you know of course uh, uh, Salt Pepper and Rob Bace. Of, uh,
0: huh Rob Bays special ed.
1: Rob Bays came out. Yeah, it, you know it became the big thing. Go right. I just you heard that whole summer, of 88 but uh, uh, yeah, that was an integral part of city life. And it was an integral part. The Beastie Boys were out. Another thing. Here, here's a group. Here's three Jewish kids from New York that are punk rock kids that are doing rap. We didn't... You know, I never really got it straight because I loved them in the beginning. And I didn't know if this... Was this a parody or were they serious?
0: But, I, I honestly you know, don't know. I know they went into the culture through the dance clubs, like Dancetarian stuff, and because they were like, you know, city Jewish kids... They were making the scene. I really don't know if it was like a tongue-in-cheek joke and then it took off or what, to be perfectly honest. You'd have to ask, you know, Adam or, or Mike, you know what I mean? Since, uh, you know, there's two Adams, but Adam Yauch is dead. So you got Adam Horowitz, Mike D, you know. Uh, I, I That's a really good question, to be honest with you.
1: Because <laughs> you, you're looking back like... I mean, to this day, if if No Sleep Till Brooklyn just came through my say my FM radio, like say that was going down, you know, or if I had it on Sirius XM and I was playing, you know, some some rap and that came on, I'm turning
0: it up. I, I'm I'm turning it up because it takes me back. Exactly. It's like
1: No Sleep Till Dan and Dan Brooklyn, you know that. that.
0: It was a perfect storm.
1: Yeah,
0: and it was a perfect storm with the way it came out at that time too. You know what I mean? Oh my
1: God, that was fucking perfect. It was perfect. Foot on the pedal, never ever false metal. Engine running hotter than a boiling
0: kettle. Yeah, I didn't know what to think about *License to Ill*, but then when they brought out *Paul's Boutique*, I saw that they were much more eclectic with what they were trying to do. But again, like I said, you know, it's it it that is a really good question because when they had their bands like The Young and the Useless and Beastie Boys Polywogs Stew EP, you know, even then they were being sarcastic and satirical, you know. It didn't seem like they were trying to do thought-provoking music. They were trying to be, you know, mugs, comics. You know what I mean? I, I think uh, the w- the way. I mean, yeah. I mean, you know, it was like kind of, it was kind of comical. But something else started taking shape at that time too. You, at the end of each generation,
1: I think that uh, some type of social consciousness arises through the music, through the sound. It's always there, but you reaches some type of crescendo where it, it builds up, and that at that time gave birth to public identity. Yeah. If you already had, KRS-One was all about the street, you know. I knew a crack dealer by the name of Pizza. I had to fuck him down with me, 9 millimeters. Then
0: his own DJ got shot to death. Yep, criminally minded. Arms, like, God, the, rock is dead.
1: the next album with KRS-One came out, it was all black consciousness.
0: Yeah, he changed real quick. He saw the writing <laughs> on the wall. They're they, right. They started seeing like, yo, man, I got a gift
1: that I could spit... I need to enlighten people, man. We need to stop killing each other over drug money and shit. And so, as a result of that, you started hearing more people rap about social conditions and shit that was going on in the world. And this this monster uh, entity was born. Like, public enemy comes out. It's like, the whole repertoire of music is anti-system and unify the people. Then they did that one, you know, one self-destruction song, with all the artists in it, self destruction, we had it for self destruction and it was geared towards telling black kids like, you know, and Latino kids and poor white kids was the city. You don't you don't have to be part of the problem. We you 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 can be part of the solution. And yeah. you know, they started it started gaining, you know, uh, more momentum. Black consciousness, boom, at the time. Then it was offset, you know, and the same thing was happening in California. I'd be remiss to say that uh, while everybody thinks of N.W.A. as being, you know, like gangster rap, thug, dial, this, if you listen to the songs, a
0: lot of it was speaking about the social conditions that people were going through in L.A. And, and we're talking about... The police coming straight from the underground, you know, it, it, In a different way. And we're talking about how exciting, you know, our lives were for being a part of this music and and being part of like this East Village, Lower East Side community. But this was towards the end of the crack epidemic, and, and most people don't realize what a pandemic that was for urban people you know, throughout the 80s. And, and we're, well, we're talking, those, well, go ahead. You no, know, all of those things now are like social experiments. I think the the,
1: the one from the Vietnam era, from my my dad's era coming home, you had the heroin. Yeah. You had the big heroin, P-Funk, China White coming over, you know, shit getting shipped over here and flooding all of these
0: ghetto communities and poor white communities with a and, and in late we, we, '70s, we late 70s, you were in the cocaine chic of freebasing, but then by 1981, crack was introduced into these impoverished neighborhoods, and they found a way to cheapen the price and cost of it but people would not be able to put it down because with cocaine, it's it's the binge you're on. You keep wanting another hit and everything like that. And it decimated families. It decimated communities, you know? Well, the same thing is happening now, but the dynamics are different. I mean, we got social media. The way everything is approached now is different. Excuse me. Yeah. Everything
1: is, is now, but it's still there. Now it's prescription medication.
0: Yep, it's pharmaceutical companies that are the dope dealers. Now there's
1: everywhere, so, you know, that that's not an issue. We, we, in my eyes, never been an issue, but people create made it into an issue. And if you think on the government sense, it was only an
0: issue because they couldn't figure out how to tax it. And control it. Alcohol was the same thing, and, you alcohol, know... Alcohol
1: through all of this shit has been be
0: worse. Of course.
1: That's the legal thing.
0: Yeah, that and tobacco, because it's taxed, it's okay. But I always found, as much as I also use weed medicinally... You know, for a kid Alcohol and weed are gateway drugs Because when we were growing up There was supposedly taboo You're not old enough to do it So any kid with a rebellious mind Is going to go experiment And then after you've done that And it's not as exciting to you Or you find this need to do more You delve into a darker Foul path You know And, and, uh You know, you were talking about, again, with with Tompkins Square Park, how all of these different cultures were able to blend and have a common ground and understanding. But also, that park was changing at that time, too, because it did turn into a shantytown, you know? Yeah. And and I think the shantytown was really prevalent at the time where your life changed, and 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 I, if you can, let's let let's start going there a little bit if we can. Well, I think,
1: man, uh, I think, I, I think. Well, I mean, my life changed before before even the incident that night. My life was kind of. You kind of seriously fucked up at that point. Anyway, it was, I had all the potential in the world. I needed some guidance. You know, you, I was all caught up in my teenage arrogance and ego. But I was not a bad kid. Like, I would listen. And I was a smart kid. But when you feel a, a sense of rejection from certain key members of your family... And you, you get to the point where you say you know what fuck this you know I'm not gonna I'm not gonna even try to connect with with loved ones I'm gonna do my own thing yeah because I keep putting my heart out here man to connect with you know connect with people only to get rejected from people that I've known and loved my whole life so I'm just gonna do my own thing I, I was running around with a girl that both of us were way too young and way too naive and way too ignorant to be in any type of relationship with each other, she developed drug problem. I'm fucking violent and abusive. Worst fucking situation for even one of
0: us to be in. Well, so, you gotta look at the situation down there. Like I said, it's hard to explain to our audience unless they saw it, what Tompkins Square Park turned into at that time. And every social disease was in that neighborhood at that time. Like I said, I was a little older than you and I got lost with the drugs and and was in my own world living on the Lower East Side and here you are down there too living and and like a lot of us you know, was squatting, that's what you were doing so here you got this girl who's dealing with drugs you're angry, I'm definitely angry in my life and having a lot of resentments which led to my drug addiction and there were a lot of fights down there that turned into a very dark, ugly situation. And this is how you, you got caught.
1: You, you, made me, you made me think about something. And I had said this before oh, oh, a while back, you know, describing what led up to my case, you know, everything that happened that night. But I I hadn't had a fight at that time. For a little while, maybe a couple of months,
0: uh-huh. like
1: I, I was attempting to turn over a new leaf. Let me see if this makes any sense.
0: I'm sure it does. Go. I was always getting in the, I was always getting in the fights down there. It was always something, right? So
1: now, I started selling drugs. And one of the guys that put me on, he was way older than me. He grabbed me up one day and he says, "Listen, when you beat somebody up, we can't make any money." Because either the cops show up because the guy's unconscious on the ground or there's blood on the ground now. You know, like, we we, we, we can't make
0: money now. You're scaring customers away, too. You're scaring customers away. You it, need to it stop was all this about, It was all about the spot down there for a lot. But, yeah, keep going. I'm not cutting you off.
1: No, 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 it's okay. And uh, I took that in. Like, I took it in and say, what's more important? Me making some money or me showing out that I can kick this fucking guy's ass. Yeah. Or or you know, whatever be the community, he'll kick my ass, but not backing down. We carrying guns now. We're in the street now, we carrying guns now, we so I start saying, you know what, no more fights.
0: Hey, at that time you I, was... I, I
1: wanna be the big guy on the block. I wanna be the guy with the bag full of coke in the world in the uh, uh, in, in the big house over there by West Broadway or in like you said before dance interior. Remember there was a little period of time dance had closed, then it reopened up.
0: Yep. Yeah.
1: And, and we used to go to uh, save the robots, you know, a choice, you know the after hours spot.
0: Yeah. And and we, we really used to touch
1: be old enough to really be in these places.
0: I'm yeah. 19. But we're touching and elbows we're with celebrities. You remember the celebrities, they used to go there, like you would never expect, you know, certain characters to be rubbing elbows with us in that fucking neighborhood at night. But if you...
1: You'll you find everybody from Deborah Harry to Grace Jones, to all kinds of people.
0: The Quay brothers, MTV. Patrick Swayze, it was crazy, man. Everybody there, fucking Jason
1: and the Scorchers looking to score some dope. Axel and fucking, uh, uh, Splash looking to score some dope. You know, you, you, you had all okay kinds of freaks coming through No, And then, question, a man. And be like, and then people like, I remember Susie, you know, Susie and she's that play. And I think they played at the rich, I don't know if it was at the Ritz. And she came with the whole, all of it the And they were in the fucking Aztec with us. And she bought all of us drinks. Yeah. Of course, they're filthy rich by then, but. That Susie was so sweet, and we're like, with our mouths open, like, wow, we got Susie in the house, and she bought us all drinks, and we're like, holy shit, you know, I remember there was another time, it was uh, Professor X from from, uh, Public Enemy, he came down, and I had missed him, and all the fellas that were there were like, yo, he was here with 3S1W, and, you they were chilling, and everybody was cool, and I was like, wow, you know, but down to the he's not Side, any, anybody would
0: show up. Sinead yeah. O'Connor lived down there for a while. She used to be a regular around, you know, the area, too. All right, we're cutting this in half, so that is the first part of a two-part episode interview with Scott E. Banks we cover a lot of different things and we haven't really even scratched the surface with his story because you know when Scott and I talk we wind up delving into a lot of different things that that just fascinate us and he's one of the only guys i know that in second and third grade had a college reading level like me so you know a lot of times not just being you know punk rock kids And from this hardcore thing, you know, we we get into some deep conversations and it's very easy to get lost. But uh, this is part one. Stay tuned next week for part two. Thank you. Good night.